You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 272. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. We talk a lot about data science here on the show. In fact, uh, we started out as a podcast on Bayesian Inference way back in episode uh, zero and one, five years ago. Still our uh, podcast on Bayesian Inference in, in many ways. And if you're like me, you've probably been to tons of conferences and, and meetups uh, or, you know, God forbid, the, the, Zoom, the Zoom meetups and webinars, but I hope not too many of those because those can get old. But particularly in the New York City area, you know, we used to go to tons of, tons of these things where we talk about data science. I went to NYU, we, we studied that. And uh, we're getting the story on how data works, but we're not getting the whole story. Uh, in 2012, uh, back when I was first starting my career in Foursquare, actually, the Harvard Business Review called data science the sexiest job of the 21st century. And in that year, NYU started its official data science master's. Now, I, of course, graduated in 2011 from NYU, uh, which was the year before. That was the information systems master's, but they took a lot of the courses I was taking and, pu- and put it together for that program. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of the start of, for more or less, better term, a, a data science slash machine learning engineer bull run. Um, now, I think this particular iteration of of data science appears to be morphing into into something else in the chat GPT era. But believe it or not, there's this whole history before 2012 uh, of of data. And, um, you know, history did not start in 2012. Uh, in fact, the Mayan calendar ended in 2012. Uh, my next guests are going to talk about this, and we're going to learn about this. They not only understand how we work with data today, inside and out, and you'll see their, uh, you know, their credentials. But also, uh, they've researched extensively the history of the field from the 19th century till today. I honestly wouldn't want this story from anyone else. Uh, Chris Wiggins is the chief data scientist at the New York Times and a professor of applied mathematics at Columbia University. Chris is also someone that uh, you know you get to know if you work with data in New York City. I first met him, I, I believe it was when I was at NYU through the Hack NY program and later through various machine learning symposiums and meetups and, and work at Foursquare itself. Since then, uh, Matthew Jones is the James Barker Professor of Contemporary Civilization at Columbia. The book is called How Data Happened, The History from the Age of Reason to the Age of Algorithms. Chris and Matt, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Max. Yeah, we're thrilled to be here with you. Yeah. Uh, so the book is called How Data Happened from the Age of Reason to the Age of Algorithms. Um, it's so new, it's not even out yet, but I think it's going to be out uh, by the time this podcast goes out. So I'll, I'll have a copy of it. Uh, but I did get a, kind of an, an, an advanced uh, PDF, which I really appreciated. Um, and when I read the preface and part of the first chapter, I thought, I have to have this book because it combines uh, history and teaching and practice all in one book. And usually kind of the books are, I, I've read books on all three, but I, I really love that combination. So I was very excited to see uh, that in this book. And also like you mentioned people who I've, who I've met in person, which is also pretty cool. So let's start with uh, what's the motivation behind this book and, and why did you decide to write it now? The book really grew out of a class we've been teaching since 2017. Um, 
and then the class in term, why now? Uh, well, we felt like over the last 10 years or so, people have been trying to make sense of how data has become so pervasively part of their lives. So we live in an age where data-empowered algorithms really shape everyone's personal and professional and political realities. Um, and I think for many people, they're they're trying to take stock of, of how it got that way. Even more so, you know, the headlines are just moving so fast. So like even in the last like three months, it just seems like every two hours there's some new headline that involves data or massive data sets or a brand new product, a brand new algorithm. I think for a lot of people, it just seems like it's hard to keep up. And in our experience, one way to get perspective is to have a historical perspective to see what is it about the present day that's new, what's not so new. And um, we think that that historical present uh, context can help people make sense of, of how data happened and where it's headed. Yeah, we wanted to get across both the excitement of the introduction of data into different domains, whether it's, you know, economics, politics, uh, the examination of humans, intelligence, or other sorts of things, and but also the way that there are real questions involved about how those are applied. It isn't just that the technology develops by itself and then gets applied and then one has to mop up afterwards, but rather there are major considerations all along the way. And thus our history opens up a, a set of questions about how is it that we got the way we are and uh, do we want to continue on those paths or do we want to deviate from those paths and where we might want to transform them more dramatically. Yeah. And your book goes all the way, like you start in the late 1800s. What was going on there that that there was some like shift that provided a good starting point for you guys? So there's two two things that really come together at the end, by the end of the the, the 18th century. On the one hand, you have this massive new prestige of, of physics, that the, the new physics that had been elaborated was able to deal things, both you know planetary bodies and other sorts of things. And people became excited. Could that be applied to the moral and political sciences as well? And at the same time, um, there became a new enthusiasm for using numbers to understand people and states. So the US mm. Constitution includes the census, right? And the, the the movement gets going to collect data. So you have the, at the, at the, we start there because you have these two movements that come together first kind of tentatively and then very robustly uh, by the 20th century, the, uh, the urge to analyze data using statistical tools and the beginning of a, a really sort of snowballing of the collection of data. Um, and uh, so when those come together robustly by the 20th century, you begin to have the kind of phenomena that we are interested in, punctuated above all by the introduction of electronic computers around the time of World War II. Yeah, so I, I actually, I I want to jump ahead here and like talk about this collaboration more because uh, you, Matthew, you're, you're a historian, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you're, right, and so, um, and I was wondering, you know, you have data scientists, historians working together to write this book. Uh, what, did you learn anything about, um, uh, and I guess this is more to Chris, like the, the research and telling of history by, by working on this book, especially, uh, you know, what do scientists and engineers not understand about the work of an historian? And, and maybe I could get both of your <laughs> uh, perspectives on that a little bit. Hmm. Well, I was already a fan of history, but um, I certainly learned a lot from Matt from teaching this class. That includes how to construct a class like this, a class that's about text and ideas, as opposed to a, a 
you know, I'd been teaching a lot of math classes where I sort of walk up to the chalkboard and then I just sort of follow the chalk and, you know, do the calculation. And then I talk about the calculation. It's very different constructing a class that's around ideas and intellectual transitions. Um, I guess another thing is I was always interested in history. You know, I'm, I've, my research has always been very multidisciplinary, which means I never really know the full history of any of the fields I've been working in. You know, I've been working in physics applied to biology and uh, mathematics and computer science uh, applied to complex systems from the natural world. And so often I'm I'm sort of entering a field in the middle of its stream. Um, and there's a lot of things that seem surprising novel or even just word choices that, you know, must have some interesting history. You know, even if you've right. encountered the word regression, you've got to wonder, like, sure. oh, why, is, why is this called regression? And then all of these things have a history about the communities that formed those techniques and what their interests were, and a chance to think about how things could have gone differently, which often is useful for helping us envision possible futures. What, why is it called regression? I don't even know. I actually have not thought about that. Well, this is a great story. So once you get to the appropriate, <laughs> once you get to the appropriate chapter, you will learn how at the end of the 19th century, people started putting data to quite to work to understand the greatness of their states, or in the case of the late Victorian Empire, the greatness of the Victorian Empire and the perceived decline in greatness of the Victorian Empire. So that was a great social concern, the rise in poverty and um, and people were looking for causes, including possibly the rise of immigration. There's many things in the decline of empire that may resonate for people in this present day. In particular, we looked at um, a particular gentleman statesman named Sir Francis Galton, who's the person who gave us the word regression, the word correlation, and the word eugenics, which was his main uh, oh, problem, wow. his, his main project to try to improve society. So he was looking at how great um, certain families are. He was a distant cousin of Charles Darwin. And so he spent a lot of time thinking about the greatness of different families and, and effectively looking at like, why is it that I am so great as are all of my family members? So he looked quite a bit at... Um, what he could use as a proxy for greatness, which was height. And so his the very first regression paper, and the students in class actually do the first regression, is to look at the um, the height of children as a function of the height of parents, right? So there's two parents, so we had to take the average. And uh, if you make that little scatter plot and then fit it to a straight line, you're doing the first ever linear regression. And he calls it regression because you get this phenomenon where the really tall parents don't have kids who are quite as tall. They're, they regress towards the the sort of mid-height of the population mm. in question. And that sort of regression where like even great-great parents might have children who are slightly less great than them, that sort of um, concern, which again went into the perceived decline of Victorian greatness, uh, was what driving what was what was driving Galton. And that drove the original usage of the word regression. Interesting. Kicked, it's almost like that, regression toward the mean. Um, that's 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 exactly right. Yeah. That's that's the context. Um so so that's the original regression, and like for a century now, we've been using, you know, that form of supervised learning, and just called regression, regression, regression. We've completely lost its original meaning. Similarly, we've lost the original meaning of the word statistics itself. So we start um, one of the fun things about starting in the eighteenth, uh, late eighteen hundreds, late eighteenth century rather, is the introduction of the word statistics into the English language, which, when it first enters the English language, has nothing to do with data. Or numbers, right? It's about trying to run the state, right? A government. So uh, originally, the word has nothing to do with data or numbers. And almost immediately, there's a fight between people for whom making sense of the state is something that you do qualitatively by understanding the greatness of its leaders. And other people who are like, well, we could probably use numbers and like little tables where every row is a country and the columns might be 
how many animals or how many population or how many square miles or what have you. Uh, and there's a fight between the uh, the people for whom that kind of statistics is called vulgar statistics, like quantitative statistics is called vulgar statistics, and the high statistics, the artful statistics, which is it's a great place to start because looking at the change in the way we use words gives us a a, a way a view into the way we change ideas and the way we change our values. You know what we think is true and why we think things are true. If we take a multi-century time scale, you can really see how those things pivot in time. Same with artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science. Part of the project of the book is to take those terms, which are now becoming intermingled and sort of used in a fuzzy way, and tease out like where did these terms come from, and how is it that the way we use them today is is vast. Or, I wouldn't say vastly different, but it, like has changed quite a bit in a way that's traceable from their original interest. Yeah, it sounds like you know it could almost take us out of the. Uh, narrow worldview of our time. And even if we don't share the worldview that they have in the past, you can almost see things in a different light by understanding the, the, the origins of these terms and the origins of these ideas. Yes. As James Grimmelman said, history makes the present strange. So our goal <laughs> in using history is not to constrain our reader, but rather to liberate our reader and help the reader see how things could be different. Yeah. So, I, I mean... If, there, there's so much we could get into. I was just flipping through it, and I saw so many great topics in the development of science uh, in, in, in your book. I saw, I think, something on the central limit theorem, Bayesian inference, uh, information theory, code-breaking, neural networks, like the, the, the origins of all of that. Uh, which, which topic, do, do, do any of these topic, topics stand out as like, you know, the most surprising to you? Um, were, were these stories, were these stories that you had known already and then just kind of decided to write down for people? Or were, was there anything that you looked into for this book where you were like, wow, this is totally not how I expected this to have uh, originated? Mm, for me, pretty much everything before 1980 was new. I didn't, I didn't really know how. So, so I learned a lot in writing writing the book. Um, maybe arguably before 1990, and even to the present day. Like um, one of the exercises in the book is to take a pair of lectures by Pat Langley about machine learning. And one of the lectures is from the early 80s, and the other lecture is from 2010. And I, you know, I was already working on machine learning in 2010 and trying to explain to other people the term machine learning. And it's fun to look at the, at two different essays written by the same person over multiple decades and see how that person writes about the changing nature of that term, right? Machine learning being a, a new enough field that what it meant in 1984 in the hands of, of one person is clearly different than what it meant in 2010, even from the same person. But I would say pretty much everything before 1980, I learned a lot, certainly about the history of, of computation, digital computation, World War II, and then how mathematical statistics became an academic field, stories like the story of regression, um, the drifting etymology of the word statistics and, and that sort of philology of how that word changed, along with pretty much every other technical term of art in the book. I learned a lot. And one thing I think both of us, uh, I think, got pretty excited about was the extent to which long before machine learning had its sort of moment of prestige, um, and when AI was largely symbolic AI, and statistics was very mathematical, uh, in the military and the US intelligence community, there was this real drive to, to connect big scale computers with large um, with large data stores with computational statistic techniques, not for the purpose of, you know, producing truths about nature, but producing actionable information. And so these early documents from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s have echoes with uh, things that 
and a- attitudes and approaches that people had in machine learning in the 90s and and, and thereafter, um, because that was the ecology in which that kind of thinking could could be supported and and um, and and thrived. And uh, we found many sort of tenant, you know, sort of fascinating ways in which things that have been you know quite secret and kept very close by the intelligence community of the military seep out in various ways. Some of them quite deliberate, some of them less so. Right. And and if you talk about the 1940s, I believe you have a whole chapter on, um, you know, was it called Data at War? And so that sounds like that is one of the like interesting turning points where you have the development of the computer as well as, you know, World War II happening at the same time. Absolutely. And I hadn't really known that story before about how much of the origin of Honestly, I think it's a it's a it's an intellectual tradition that leads up to the present day under data science is born of that particular context of making sense of streams of messy, important real world data. So there's many ways that data was useful in World War II, but the particular way that it was used for code breaking and how it directly led to computation itself was a story that I did not know. Right. So it looks like you organized the book into three parts, and I, I just for my balling, it looked like the, like you know the the first two are historical, uh, and the third uh, covers some contemporary issues, uh, and the maybe the second part is more like World War II onward. Uh, how did how did you decide to break it up like that? It's a good question. I mean, I, I guess as a when I was growing up, I sort of was tired of hearing about how important World War II is. But the older I get, the more <laughs> I realize, wow, World War II really was pretty important. Um, it just had such a massive impact on the way the country organized um, resources as well as norms. So the way it organized resources around science, I, I, I just hadn't appreciated. You know, I grew up funded by the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, but I did not understand you know that those things must have had a birthday you know they must have there must have been a time when the national science foundation didn't exist you know what was it like before that and what was somebody thinking when they made that so similarly with right. digital computation there must have been a time when people did not have digital machines like what were they made for what came before it what was special purpose what was special purpose hardware for making sense of streams of messy data before 1939 that is a story which i now know which i definitely did not know before that so Learned a lot. Right. So so that so that's how we that's why we chose that as a topic for a chapter is we felt like it was a real pivotal change and really kicks off part two of the class for um in the book for um helping us understand what it means to make sense of the world through data on a computer. Yeah. Um and so okay, so uh before I want to get into some contemporary issues uh, eventually that have also been recurring discussions on this podcast, which is now uh, celebrating our, our fifth year of, of doing this. Um, but uh, well, before we go on that, Matt, do you have anything to add about the kind of organization of the historical context of the book, uh, you know, given your work? Yeah, well, we wanted, you know, if the early part of the book is very much about the development of a, of in fact, new scientific approach, the development of the statistical approach to what is, uh, what is science, the p-value, statistical significance, and whatnot, we really wanted to have a, a sort of pivot to when this becomes a much more sort of industrial process where you have sort of actionable intelligence or business intelligence that's really quite detached in some ways from some of those older goods. It takes a different characteristic and requires the kind of larger infrastructures, infrastructures for collecting, recording, uh, and then analyzing data. That it's a, 
that it it's an it becomes much more of an engineering task, and with that engineering task comes, of course, uh, a, a much greater reach, much greater concerns about uh, uh, issues like privacy and legality, um, and and other sorts of things. Before pivoting to the to the moment where it's not just an engineering tech, but is ever more sort of everywhere, ubiquitous in in our situation. So we really envisioned it along th- those lines, um, and to to really see uh, to use actually the, in, the the code breaking that happens at Bletchley Park. If it's on the one hand famous guys uh, like Alan Turing, it's also teams uh, largely of women making sure that you're doing large scale compute and that. The, our moment is one where it isn't just some, you know, one genius coming up with an algorithm, but uh, that being done at really industrial scale, and that that's central to understanding what we can do um, and some of the problems around it. Right. And it sounds like you guys cover, like, you know, not just the political implications, but like the business implications, the cultural implications, uh, all of it kind of together. I love this kind of interdisciplinary approach here. Um, it, we really so, had to get into the business implications of data because this there was such an, an amazing moment in the 1970s around privacy when people were concerned about overreach of power by the state when the state was seen as having a lot of data. And that is such a useful foil for present day conversations about the power of tech companies, which have all the data. So it's it's I think it's really instructive to compare the the norms and the laws and the narrative of the 1970s about the way people reacted to too much power in one hand, too much data in one hand, namely the state, and how that's different from and yet has some of the same fears as too much power in the hands of one place, namely private corporations. Right, right. And it's, it's private corporations and, and it's still the state too. I mean, right. So it's uh, so, so now we've got in some, in some ways, though, in all fronts. The, the state hasn't been able to keep up as you know, as there's, there's NSA documents we've, we've right. looked at for the class where uh, people, cryptanalysts were clear that there was a time when they were outstripping private industry. And then there was a time when private industry was outstripping the NSA, according to these documents. Wow. At what point was that? I mean, I, I could take a guess, but I'll hear it from you. Was that like Matt, last what, few years? What did you say? Nineteen nineteen nineties. Well, in terms of computational hardware, it actually it, it sort of converges by the seventies that what is being produced. Oh wow! Externally, though, the NSA is really at the heart of a lot of developments around, say, uh, computers like the Cray and other kinds of things. But there's a sense that private industry is is going ahead, and particularly is going out on its own. And then in analytic technologies, uh, they've been sponsoring this kind of stuff since the Cold War period. Um, but it takes off in academia and then in the large data-driven corporations uh, by the 90s in ways that they appear only to hope to be able to catch up with. So I, I would have expected, I, I would have expected wrongly that this was a product of like the the rise of social media, you know, more, more recently. Uh, whereas, you know, th- this whole idea of, you know, entities controlling so much data just goes way further back than, than most, most of us talk about, um, or most of us hear about in, in the media and in conversations. Yeah, at the end of the 1960s, there was both the concerns about like government databases that would rule us all. And there was the beginning of a, a set of concern about like uh, consumer databases and the, the consolidation of credit reporting. Um, and so th- it goes back quite a ways. Um, uh, as it turns out, in the 1970s, the U.S. chose to highly regulate government 
collection of data um, and not really regulate uh, most uh, corporate collection on data, except in a, a few sectors um, that perseveres to this day. All right. So, yeah, I, I wrote I, I, I wrote a couple notes on some of the contemporary issues that uh, that are mentioned toward the end of the book uh, that, that we've also been discussing on the podcast every week. You know, we have discussions, arguments, whatever, you know, lots of lots of people come on the show to talk about this stuff. So I wanted to see what you found a little bit. Um, you mentioned, first of all, in this book, uh, the rise of, of these AI ethics groups at organizations, particularly like a, you know, large kind of big tech organizations, uh, specifically Google. Um, I've covered this some, uh, while noting that like kind of the incredible amount of like drama and personality conflict that these departments tend to generate. So I, I the, the question I wrote was like, what, what do we need to understand and think about when, when people call for AI ethics or, or data ethics? It's a good question. I mean, one question is what, what is in it for them, so to speak? Like, what is it that's motivating companies to actually do this? Um, yeah. Is it retaining and recruiting great talent that cares about it? Is it fear of regulation? Is it fear of losing customers from simply bad brand management? Um, there's a lot of a lot of things that can lead you can imagine leading a company to think very seriously about ethics. And then the next thing is, well, what are they going to do about it? Because for a lot of companies, it's very easy to appoint one person who's in charge of ethics, and then you can say, okay, well, that person owns ethics now because we put, we hired somebody who's in charge of that, or to state a set of principles, which you know, if if the principles don't somehow couple to the process, principles don't actually change anything. Um, in rare examples, there's companies that have either staffed up a whole group of things or that have found meaningful ways to integrate that um, ethical commitment into practice. Uh, part of what we were able to look at in the very recent years is part of the collapse and flame out of that effort. You know, 2016 through 2021, roughly, there seemed to have been a huge rise in interest in ethics. And a lot of it seems to have collapsed right around 2021. And that will be a question for future historians to to answer why there why there wasn't a sustained interest over the let's say last two years, and with quite the um, energies that there was twenty sixteen through roughly twenty twenty one. Right. Well, I mean, there was interest in it, and maybe I could ask more of like a skeptical question. Uh, and and we probably don't have the answer to it yet. But did it even do any good that there was uh, interest in it from particularly corporations and in, in the. Uh, you know, in the, in the period that you mentioned, late 2010s? A statistician might answer, we will never know the counterfactual universe that would, <laughs> would, have, that would have existed had none of these places given attention to ethics. Certainly it's yeah. had a big impact on academic uh, work. So within academic computer science, like fairness, which is one particular, you know, subtopic within ethics, uh, has really blossomed over the last uh, seven years as, uh, as, a, as a field of academic and research interest. Interesting, interesting. It always, I that reminds me of how, uh, like I got a, I, I heard a, a pitch by by a startup, you know, a, a few weeks ago, and the beginning of the pitch to me directly was uh, they were telling me about how ethical they were and how they took ethics seriously, and they were telling me this before they actually told me what they did. So that almost made me very skeptical because I was like, why, why? Why do I need to be worried about your ethics if I if I if I don't know what you do yet? Uh, so um, anyway, that was just uh, <laughs> that was just a personal experience and a personal bias, maybe. Uh, all right. So 
we also talk about the use of data for advertising and persuade and uh, persuading and and manipulation. Uh, it's nothing new, but it, it's you know it's come to a the the scale of it today is much larger. Um, do you have any takeaways on that? Is it possible for us as people to become more difficult to manipulate by data efforts? It's almost like you know you hear about the efforts to manipulate people through politics, through um, buying, you know, through consumer behavior. And when you're on one side of it, it's like, uh, yes, we can use this to achieve our goals. And I almost, is there any discussion on the other side of it where it's like, okay, well, how do I know that these kind of, this use of data is, um, you know, I am, the use of my data is, is, uh, is, is not, causing me to do something that's not in my interest. I hope I... Uh, well, the first, the first so, question was, yeah. is it possible for us to become more immune to persuasion, right? Yeah. So it's, I'd certainly like to believe so. I, it, a slightly related phenomenon is immediately after the 2016 election, when there was renewed attention by many in fake news, I was talking to somebody who used to be heavily involved in British media, and he said, well, you know, in the United Kingdom, people weren't so influenced by... Uh, duplicitous news sources that look like real news because they had already been soaking in duplicitous media for centuries, uh, centuries or decades, let's say. And so they were sort of immune to the idea that you have things that are mm, not so plausible, but they're published in what looks like, graphically, looks like a reputable news source. I, I definitely think norms can change, right? And technology changes and norms change thereafter. And then a longer timescale, laws change to, kept up, to catch up to people's norms, which have changed in response to technologies. So- I, I'm maybe I'm naive, but I, I do believe I have hope that um, people will learn how to use these technologies responsibly, including to use these technologies critically. I no, I have hope too because I, if I remember correctly, like 2015, 2016, there were a lot of websites that were like, um, you know, just not actual newspapers, um, but would you know, um, but you know, you, you, you kind of see them on their feed and it would be totally made up stories. Um, and so now that still kind of happens, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but it happens in a different way. People, uh, people react to it. Quite transient. And it is a socio-technical system. So it's really also related to people's identity. And, you know, um, I think a lot of technologists immediately responded to the, to the narrative around fake news by saying, okay, well, we'll make algorithms that will be able to tell you what is actually true and what is not true. And, a couple of years later, it's not clear that everybody really cares if it's true. You know, it's arguably a lot of the the way that people react to persuasion and to uh, shared social communications doesn't necessarily seem to be constrained by truthiness. It doesn't seem to be the central thing that determines how people engage with and share content. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also have concerns about the idea that we're going to have algorithms that, like, you know okay, you can maybe validate the source of something. You can statistically tell me, you know, something, but an actual news item, like almost, you know, or, or a fact that's put out on Twitter, like that's something that has to be debated. I don't think like an AI, at least today, can tell us whether that's true or not, if it ever could. Understood. Yeah. All right. Um, and finally, this is the fun one, uh, because, uh, Last week, I I, I talked about the kind of the AI doomsday scenario on the podcast, and I actually got some pushback from some of my listeners uh, because I was very skeptical uh, reading about kind of the 
the AI doomsday people. I think I told a friend the other day, like, come on, the doomsday cult is one of the oldest tricks in the book. But there are people who are telling me, look, you know, uh, there are a lot of smart people who think that we're in big trouble. And, uh, you know, uh, keep reading, Max. So how did you choose to cover this topic? Um, we, I, I, I don't know. I, I think we are kind of on the same side as you that we feel like there's a lot of real present dangers today. And so rather than spending our time speculating on potential Terminator scenarios, why not look at the things that are really pretty messed up right now and, um, exacerbating inequalities and, you know, disempowering people who are already disempowered. And, um, I, I'm, I have no doubt that there are extremely successful people who say, don't worry about the problems that are being caused right now, particularly those around inequality. You pay worry about, you know, the Terminator coming around the corner. And um, it's possible that the only actual threat to those people is a Terminator because they're already on top of everything. And so they're doing just fine. But um, I think if you look at society right now, there's all sorts of opportunities to inspect ways that algorithms are um, not always acting in the, you know, consumer interests of consumer protection. Let's, let's, let's put it mildly. Um, I, I think those real present concerns of the present day are, are much more um, forefront than speculating on future Terminators. Nice. All right. So it uh, looks like we've got our, our 30 minutes, but uh, I, I want a chance to, uh, to kind of um, summarize everything. So um, now maybe uh, Matt and Chris, you could give us a little bit of like, well, what are your, your final thoughts about our discussion today? And where can we, uh, where can we learn more about the book and learn more about what you guys do. Um, I'd say as a final thought, you know, as I said earlier, I, I think that the, the breakneck pace of innovation and, and data and data empowered algorithms is, is difficult to contextualize. And I think that history gives an extremely useful context for understanding where it came from and where it's going and, and how we are all um, have a role in shaping it. As far as finding out more um, books available, pretty much wherever books are sold these days. Um, and, and Matt and I are still here at Columbia doing what we do. Nice. Yeah, and I'll just say, I, I would say one takeaway is if anyone is telling you that a, a technology is only going to go one direction and everything has to change because of that technology, they are probably literally selling you a bag of goods. There's lots of ways that technological systems can be developed. Uh, and we can be excited about that and also shape it in ways that comport with our notions of the kind of societies we want to live in. Um, and the book, yeah, as Chris says, is going to be available at all of your favorite booksellers and uh, an audiobook version will also be available um, upon launch. Um, so nice. those of you who prefer to use your ears and your eyes, uh, we, we welcome listeners and readers. Nice. Do, do you guys read the audio book or did you get someone else to do it? <laughs> no, no, no. There are things we are good at and there are things that we are <laughs> less good at. <laughs> so, I appreciate it. A, a, a professional was used for reading the book, not us. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. A couple of related episodes uh, that, that, that I want to call out. Uh, if we go back to more recently, episode 265 on the local maximum, I talked about the, uh, the multi-armed bandit. And I actually reviewed one of the papers, uh, Chris, that, that you've sent out before on, on the contextualized multi-armed bandit. So, uh, so you might be interested in that. And then I'm kind of scared to go back to this episode, but episode six on Facebook data and the election, that was the episode that came out during the Cambridge Analytica stuff. And I'm kind of, I don't know, this is almost in the, in the purview of historians now, like what, what was I saying about it at the time? But uh, <laughs> that's another one to, to check out. All right. 
All of this will be available on the show notes page, and I'll come on afterwards because we'll we'll know what what episode this is. And um, yeah, really appreciate you guys taking your time. Uh, I know this discussion and the book has kind of got me thinking about these issues in a, in, a, in a new way and kind of a, a more a more broad way than I had in the past. So I, I appreciate that, and I think that uh, that you'll bring those perspectives to the listeners too. So thank you very much. Hey, thank That's you, Max, for having us. Yeah, thanks. All right, once again. The book, I've got it right here. It's called How Data Happened, A History from the Age of Reason to the Age of Algorithms. Look it up. I just got it from Amazon today. It's uh, it's really easy to read. It's it's really accessible for anyone. So if you're, you know, if you like learning about this stuff uh, from, from a very technical level, but if you feel like, you know, sometimes maybe, you know, you don't want to read a, a book that is is purely technical, but you're really into history, I think this is the book for you. All right. Next week, uh, um, next week, if the timing is right, I'm going to talk more about how my life in Connecticut is going, among other things. Maybe Aaron will interview me. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.